This is Roof English Radio with Darinata, daily English language radio from Iceland's national broadcaster, Roof. Hello, this is Roof English Radio. I'm Darren Adam. Thanks very much for your company. I'm again in West Iceland today, and I am at Snorastova, which is really the very centre of everything you could ever want to know about a very important figure in Icelandic history, a man who brought us really our modern understanding of the Norse myths. Snorri Sturluson is the man that I'm referring to. And I'm here today with Sigrun Gudons Dottir Thornmar who's going to guide me through. And the starting point for this is the church at Drekjo. If you can see the church, drive up to it, and then you enter a tunnel into this exhibition. We're going to learn a lot about the, the writings and the work of this man, but Sigrun, where do we start? We start here by uh, the entrance portal, which uh, is a portal that was um, carved and made here in 2012 by a carver from Norway, Bjarte Orsted. He works at the Oseberg Ship Museum in Oslo, where they have all the, the old ships that were excavated there. Beautiful ships, very, very impressive to see them. But he actually came here, this was, this was all carved by hand, and he worked inside the exhibition hall. Came actually twice, and people could see him working. But uh, uh, that design is uh, in influenced by a portal that is kept at the National Museum in Oslo and was uh, around a door in uh, a church, a Viking church, staff church in Norway. It's really striking. Just to yeah. describe some of the figures that are represented here, if I can do them justice, we have, for example, a woman who's offering up a baby. There's a family around the table with some golden goblets. There are some warriors holding axes aloft. And there is a scholar at the bottom who appears to be pointing to the letter Thorn. Very striking imagery. Yes. Uh, on the right side, the images are inspired by Heimskringla, which is a biography of the Norse kings that's not a road. So these are images uh, from Heimskringla. Uh, yes, you saw the, the child there. Uh, it could, could mean that a child is, is given for fostering, which was uh, very uh, was common back then, mm -hmm. that uh, children would, would be fostered. Uh, Snorri Sturluson himself was fostered, and that is something that changed his destiny and his life. Uh, number two, where you can see uh, the man sitting there, you can see some coins on the table. Um, they are negotiating for a bride. Oh, so that's it's, Yes, mm -hmm. so it's a marriage. Young, young people there in behind. Uh, and then an axe and a king. Well, a king that is being beheaded. It's uh, dangerous to be a king. Yes. <laughs> and, uh, and then uh, maybe Snorri Sturluson uh, by his desk. And I will show you a desk here inside the exhibit. So this is Snorri himself represented be, in the lower panel, we think. Yeah, it could be Snorri himself, yes. Showing that he's a man of letters, literally, by, yes. by pointing at one. And, uh, but on the left side, uh, the patterns are influenced by Edda, the Norse mythology. So in the top, you can see Sigurd the uh, dragon slayer, Fopnispanni. He's killing the dragon. And then uh, some patterns, uh, uh, creatures. Uh, but these ornaments were very uh, common in, in patterns from that time, uh, that period. And uh, patterns like this were, were quite common also in Iceland around doors of manors uh, mm. and uh, lords' manors and churches. But what is most striking uh, are the dragons. Yes. Because they are for protection. These are the two dragons that crisscross at the yes. top, an arch, making an arch that you walk under. 
Yes, so when we enter, uh, we, we enter uh, under the dragons, uh, we are not supposed to have evil in mind and we are not supposed to bear weapons. Okay. So this is, uh, uh, sometimes I, I tell the tourists that this is a sort of a security gate from the medieval times. Were you checking your guns? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, so if, <laughs> if you have any guns with you, something bad will strike you or your family. And the dragon, of course, is one of the four, uh, the weights, the land weights of Iceland. It's represented on the passport, isn't it? Yes, yes, yeah. it is. But but this was in Norway as well. This was very very common mm -hmm. uh, around doors. And and like I said, it 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 was for protection, okay. and it worked. All right. Well, I've cleansed myself of evil. I can promise <laughs> I've got no weapons on me as we walk under this arch and into the exhibition proper. You might say a lot of yes. people would spend a lot of time just looking at that archway because yes, it's so yes. detailed, isn't it? And and some some might wonder why we have these strong colours on them. And, uh, well, we contacted several specialists in Norway and mm -hmm. uh, they were all agreed that uh, uh, back then uh, the, they would be colourful like this. And they're very, very brightly yes. coloured, we should say. All the colours are represented. Yes. They're strong primary yeah. colours. Yeah. yeah. Uh, we decided that they, we wanted them to look like they, they, they looked in the beginning, originally, but not how they would have looked 1,000 years ago, okay. with, with, where all the colours have, have vanished. So we walk into the main room or the first room of the exhibition proper what would you want to point me to here in terms of something that really represents and points to the life of Snorri that we will discuss first here in the beginning there's a little bit about the Norse mythology but then uh, over here his uh, the story of his life begins because the exhibit is with focus on his life it's not so much about his work mm -hmm. but on on him as a man and his life so, and a man of learning, a man of contradictions. Yes, absolutely, absolutely, yeah. But, uh, but what makes his destiny is that uh, when he is uh, three years old, his father uh, is involved in a conflict with uh, the priest that lived here in Rekot. And of course, it was a conflict about money and inheritance. And to solve the conflict, they had to uh, call in a chieftain from the south, a highly respected chieftain, who was the Jon Loftsson. Mm -hmm. Uh, from Otti. Jon Loftsson was uh, a nobility. His uh, grandfather was a former king of uh, both Norway and Scotland, Magnus Olofsson the Barefoot. or the Barefoot. Uh, Magnus Olofsson died in battle in, uh, in Scotland in 1103 at the age of 30. But in between, he was a very busy man because he fathered around 50 children. He was busy. He was very busy, and his nickname, uh, the bare-legged or the barefoot, is probably because he wore a kilt. And oh. do we agree what if they have anything under their kilt? Well, on the two occasions <laughs> that I was compelled to wear a kilt, I, I didn't. Okay. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm sure that he did not. Uh, so he had uh, a daughter that was named oh. Thora, and Thora was the mother of Jon Loftsson. Um, Jon Lofsson's life is also quite adventurous. Mm -hmm. When he is, uh, when, as a child, he is fostered, as was very common. He's fostered in Kungshella, which is a castle on the border between Norway and Sweden. It's still a castle there today. And uh, uh, his foster father was a monk. Uh, when Jon was nine years old, the castle was attacked and raided by Vikings from Poland, from Stetten. Uh, his foster father manages to rescue him and he's sent to Iceland to the fa f family of his father. And this is where he lives for the rest of his life, uh, in Otti. 
So he is uh, extremely uh, highly respected mm -hmm. and uh, he's extremely wealthy. And he's called in here to recall to solve the conflict between Snotty's father and the priest, which he does uh, quite successfully. And uh, as a part of uh, the conflict solving that he offers Snotty's father is that he offers to foster his little son Snotty. And he's, of course, uh, uh, giving him high, high, great honor by offering this. Yes. And that's where Snorri's story that's begins. We can talk a bit about the education that he received because it was a very comprehensive education and it really did rely on the on the classics as well, didn't it? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. He, he, he learns all, all the, the classics from that time, everything that was possible. And uh, there's no doubt that he got the best education that was possible in Iceland during that time. Mm. Um, but during that time, it was also common that uh, sons of lords would be sent abroad and they could be sent to England, and they could be sent to Italy, mm -hmm. to France, to Denmark or Norway and get education. But uh, Snorri, he gets his education in Otte, and uh, yeah, a very fine education. Let's talk about what he does with it then, because he is such an important figure in Icelandic history. I mentioned there it's, it's a complicated legacy, isn't it? I think Snorri was quite complicated. I think that this, this part of his life that he's taken away from his... Uh, parents, his siblings, everything that he knows, not even four years old, and has to stand on his own two feet mm -hmm. uh, among older men, because his foster father is, is in his 60s. And uh, we have no information of uh, a female taking care of him that would have been dear to him. Mm -hmm. So I think that this is marked, marks him for life. He's lonely. I think he's lonely, and I think that he, uh, he gets... He has difficulties later in life in bonding emotionally, especially mm. with his children. Now, we'll talk about that work in a few moments' time, but let's continue to look at his life as we move through the exhibition. He was, of course, the law speaker. He was the speaker of Althingi uh, on two occasions, 1215 to 1218 and 1222 to 1231. So he really was at the heart of Icelandic society just by doing that. Yes, but uh, um, when he has finished his education, when he's around 19 years old, uh, he needed some money. Uh, he couldn't inherit his foster father, and his father, who was 32 years older than the mother, he had passed away when the mother was just 35 years old. Uh, she had uh, taken a lover, and she had actually spent most of her inheritance that was meant for her sons. So Snorri being the, the youngest uh, of the sons, mm -hmm. he didn't really get any, any money and he was in need of that because his plans for the future was much greater than to become a, a priest or a, or a scholar in some remote place of Iceland. He had big plans for himself. So uh, first of all, he needed money. And uh, that of course was done through marriage. So his uh, foster brother, who was the Bishop of Iceland, mm -hmm. uh, he negotiated uh, for the marriage between Snorri and uh, Herdis Persadottir from Borgenborganes, which was uh, the only daughter and sole heir from Persi the Rich, which maybe says it all. But this is how he got his first chieftainship, and this is how he got uh, money and wealth. And as the law speaker, his, as I say, a very important role in Icelandic society. 
Does he think he's made it at this point? Does he think he's achieved what he wants to have achieved? No, absolutely not. He wants more he for wants himself, more. Okay. yes. He wants to uh, become acquainted with the kings of Norway. He wants even more wealth. He wants uh, more powers. Well, let's see how he does with that then. We'll move around towards... Well, the concept of love is <laughs> is described here. You you talked about his, his marriage and, and, and a, I guess, a, a lack of love in his life because they did end up divorcing. What do we know about the marriage? That it was unhappy, that it was based on, on business. And uh, even though they, of course, managed to uh, fulfill what is expected, they have two children together, but uh, he starts to have uh, mistresses and several of them. And he fathers three children with three different mistresses in a very short period, which his wife is not very happy about. So uh, they simply negotiate for the separation. Mm. And uh, he moves out into uh, 1206, and he buys Rekolt, so he's back where really it all began. And he lives here uh, for the next 10 years with uh, one of his mistresses, which is she, Guðrún Hreinsdóttir. Uh, they had our daughter in 1208, which was named Ingibjörg. And Ingibjörg later marries uh, uh, Gissur, which uh, is the one that, well, makes Snorri's destiny. He is uh, in charge of the men that in the end come and uh, execute him. How many Icelanders can trace themselves back to Snorri? I know a lot like to, or think that they can. I think most of us can, actually. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> well, I can, definitely. I'm number yeah. 23 from Snorri, really? yes. Really? Uh, um, I think most of us that are, are you know, f well, I could say full-blood Icelandic, uh, we can trace ourselves either directly to him mm -hmm. or, or to his siblings. Okay. Yeah. Now, by 1206, as you say, he's, he's back here at, at Rekul, but he's got control of a variety of farms, hasn't he? Oh, he yes. just chooses to live here. Oh, yeah. yes, yes, <laughs> he does. Um, there were many things that made Reykjavik an uh, attractive place. Of course, the thermal energy, the hot water, and uh, uh, yes, and also because it's uh, centralized, mm. uh, where, it, where it is placed. Uh, this was these were the crossroads. If you were riding from the south, from the west, from the north, uh, it was very convenient to pass Reykjavik, and. Uh, uh, it was also convenient to ride from Reykjavik and to Thingvellir. Mm -hmm. It was one one day ride. Let's move into a room, an old room, which is set up here in the middle of the exhibition, at one end of the exhibition. Now, there's a beautiful table in the middle, there's lots of beautiful furniture, there's an organ, books on the shelves and some portraits as well. This isn't a room from the 12th or 13th century, <laughs> plainly. What what no. what happens or what did happen no. in here? Uh, well, this room was uh, uh, furnished and designed by the former pastor and his wife. And uh, he used it uh, um, for uh, education for uh, children, um, the confirmations, confirmation mm. children. Mm -hmm. uh, and... Uh, well, he, like I said before, he went on retirement in 2020, but, but this room is dedicated to uh, the man here on the picture, which is uh, Bishop Finnur, mm -hmm. and not many people know who Finnur was, especially not, uh, not foreigners, but it's, this room is called Finn's Stova, Finn's living room, 
but we actually had a conference here a couple of years ago mm. and somebody named it the bishop's room. Right. So I actually think that's a good name. I think for that it. fits very nicely, doesn't it? I think it, it fits very nicely. It is. It has a atmosphere over it. Yes. Well, it, it it speaks to this location and it speaks yeah. to the history of this location. We yes. want to pick that back up now as we talk about Snorri again. And of course, mm -hmm. he he moved back here in twelve oh six. He moved abroad as well. Travelled abroad. He went to Norway. How important were those foreign travels to him? They were very important because he's. Uh, He's uh, making connection, connections, but he's also, of course, gathering material for the books that he has planned to write, especially, of course, Heimskringla. So he's gathering uh, texts and uh, poetry and, and old, older books uh, for this purpose. Mm. But uh, he also develops a, a very close friendship with uh, uh, the Earl Skuli, Skuli Bardason, mm. who was, the, might say, a, the Bai King and uncle of Hakon Hakonson, who was the young king. Um, these stories, is of, of, of course, are, are extremely uh, exciting. You can read all about them in Heimskringla. Mm. But uh, Hakon Hakonson is just 14 years old when Snorri visits Norway, and he became king only at the age of 13. Um, his, his life was so adventurous. His mm. father was uh, murdered, uh, poisoned by his own stepmother. Um, <laughs> very disturbed families in Norway during that time. Yeah. Um, but, um, well, the king's enemies, they, uh, they didn't know that the king had a son. So they were, of course, uh, trying to put their king in the place uh, to rule Norway. What's also done uh, through a, a bishop in Denmark and uh, connections from there. But uh, then they found out that the king had fathered uh, a boy with one of his mistresses. And uh, the child was uh, two or three years old. Mm. And uh, the Birkebeina, which is called um, the, the landowners and the farmers in Norway, they rescued the child. And they went, it's very, very famous, they went on skis mm. across Norway to save oh. the child with, uh, with the, um, the Danish army in, in behind trying to get the child. And you, of course, isn't it? It's very, yes. Yeah. You, of course, you can imagine what they wanted to do with the child. Yes. But yes. they managed actually to rescue the child. And this has been filmatized. And it's uh, a very, very good movie and uh, quite accurate historically. Snorri Sturluson wrote about the king. He composed yeah. poetry. Yes, he became a very close friend with uh, Skule. And uh, this is a friendship that would last while they both lived. Both were executed uh, by the order of King Haukon. Uh, later, the, Hauk uh, the king, of course, wants to get rid of what he uh, considers to be his enemies. And uh, uh, both uh, Skule and Haukon later want to become sole kings of Norway, and uh, they had men um, on each side, mm. uh, so that didn't really work, and Snorri was on the side of Skule. I think we should start to talk about his literary work, because it defines so much. And we will get to that conversation, mm -hmm. but as we continue to move through the exhibition and move through his life, what's the next yeah. significant point, would you say? Absolutely, his house. Uh, because you have to remember that he is extremely wealthy. He can do anything that he pleases. Mm -hmm. uh, when his first wife, she passes away in 1224, he remarries. And he marries the richest widow of Iceland, Hatlve Ormsdottir. So he really knew how to pick them. 
And he was also a, a clever businessman. He knew how to multiply his fortune. So he's extremely wealthy. And when he returns from Norway, he decides to rebuild uh, Rekolt, the site. Mm. And he builds this fortress. And this is uh, very likely that it looked like something like this. Yeah, there's a, an illustration here, which, I mean, shows the scale of it apart from anything else. It's mm -hmm. big, isn't it? This is a big estate. This is how it might have, have looked with fortifications, a number of buildings inside the fortifications as well, and very close to where we're standing now. Yes, yes, it, it is. And this has all been excavated and investigated, but we also have uh, descriptions and information from Sturlunga Saga, which is a contemporary historical book written by Snorri's nephew, Sturla mm. Thorlason, who was also a foster child here. But uh, we know that he imports building material from Norway. So these are typical Norwegian houses. And the wall around the fortress is two meter high, also uh, built from lumber imported from Norway. A staffed church outside mm. uh, the fortress, which is probably the third church in Reykjavik, and was quite big. It was uh, uh, probably around 100 square meter big, which is very big for that time. And uh, of course, the hot tub. Yes. Yes. His pool, Snorreloj. Yeah. Now, this is definitely worth talking about because here in the 21st century, Icelanders, of course, myself included, every single day we'll go to the pool, we'll go to the hot pot. It's not a new idea, <laughs> as this shows. What do we know about the pool here, which, which bears his name? Does it bear his name because he used it? Absolutely. Uh, but there has been a, a bath or a pool here from the beginning of settlement. It is simply here by nature because mm -hmm. there's a hot spring nearby and there was a brook that led the water uh, into this natural pool. But he uh, starts to uh, rebuild it and makes it, uh, has it made nice, nicely and, and uh, approximately like, like it lo looks today. It has been uh, remade, of course, several times and amended, but we believe that most of the stones in the bottom and the sides that are original are from his time. And he also has a conduct made to lead the water uh, in the ground from the hot spring. He takes what? stones to move the water toward yes. where he wants it. It's, yeah. uh, it's uh, simply a, a conduct. You can see the stone here on the floor. Okay. So these were stones that were carved and they would be tightened with clay and the water would be simply led through these pipelines and they would be dug down uh, tightened with uh, uh, turf and grass. And uh, there's a, a 120 meter long pipeline from the hot spring to lead the water into the hot tub. And this 800 year old plumbing is actually <laughs> still used today. And there's, um, there's no uh, modern uh, hanky-panky inside it. It's simply no. just an 800-year-old pipeline that leads the water to the hot tub. It wasn't just the Romans who were doing this. No, <laughs> no. So, <laughs> but, but even more amazing is that he is uh, also trying to, or experimenting with using the hot steam yes. for heating. So he does not just use the hot water. He also has a different type of conduct made, which was not for water, but for steam. Yes. Which led water uh, into the fortress, where they discovered a building with stone floor, where a pipeline ends. And very likely, on top of that stone floor would have been a wooden floor. So he was leading the steam between the two floors. And we don't know, of course, what he was using that building for, you know, a building with floor heating. Yes. But it could have been um, a, a bathhouse or a sauna, but since there's really no, no tradition for that in Iceland, it's not maybe highly likely. 
but it could have been also a room to work with wool or work on persement, skin, or it could have been a brewery. Oh, I hadn't thought of that. <laughs> this is before the beer ban. Obviously. Yes, yes, absolutely. <laughs> a couple of uh, you eight, eight to, or nine hundred years yeah. before the beer ban. <laughs> you have to remember that uh, his household is quite big, probably yes. around 100 people, and ale would be essential for a big household like this, you know, keep people happy. Mm -hmm. And I've asked the chief ecologist several times, what do you think this building was used for? And she always ended up with this, this answer, I think it was a brewery, mm. because I found some grain outside it, okay. and uh, uh, I think that was imported for everyone. found grain? Yeah. How old would that have been? From his time. He oh, lives here from his time, yeah. Goodness. Well, we certainly credit him then with making, at the very least, with making use of the hot water in a way that still to this day is made. So, that, I mean, that's in his credit column as well. We will talk about the Norse myths and the enormously important part that he plays in writing those down. What happens next in his life? Well, uh, the problems in Norway, of course, uh, affect, affect him. Uh, he, he is on the side of Skule and he's on the side simply of the, the wrong king, of the losing part. And uh, in the end, uh, uh, King Haakon, he asks Gissur, uh, which is... Uh, uh, a powerful chief in Iceland, and son, Snorri's former son-in-law, he asks him to uh, go to Reykjavik and to uh, to uh, imprison Snorri and bring him back to Norway. Uh, and uh, if there would be any problem with that, he mm. was allowed to do what was necessary. And Gissur is, of course, an upcoming young chieftain, and he sees this as an opportunity for himself. So Snorri never stood a chance. He was simply just executed, killed on the spot. Mm. But uh, he was also, for the second time in Norway, um, when this is all happening, um, the conflict uh, escalating between the two kings, and he leaves uh, Norway without the, uh, King Haakon's permission. And uh, if you are the, are the king's man, uh, you, you are, of course, supposed to do what the king orders you to do, and you're not supposed to leave without his permission. And Snorri did that. So King Haakon considers him to be a sort of a traitor mm -hmm. to, his, uh, to him and his kingdomship, and he wants to, you know, Put, put a few uh, good words, talk to him seriously. Yes. But I, I'm not, I don't think really that he wanted him killed. Yeah. I think that was just something that happened. And he did die at the age of 62. 62, I, yes. 62, yeah. but has left an extraordinary legacy, which we're going oh, to yes. talk about now, and that is his writing down, essentially, his gathering together mm -hmm. of what we now think of as the mm -hmm. Norse myths. Yeah. Had that been done before? No, that had never been done before. And uh, his sources and his inspirations are, are of course, old poetry, but uh, also oral stories. Mm -hmm. uh, m maybe he was interested in, in astronomy. Maybe he sat in this hot pot, watched the stars, um, the northern lights, mm -hmm. and fantasized about Odin and Thor and all of these stories. But uh, they are simply just uh, fantasy. They, are, they have nothing to do with uh, the pagan religion, mm. not at all. Mm. It's just fantasy stories, but based on these elements. But they've lasted, haven't they, these yes, stories? Yes, they have. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And have been so influential on the culture of the West as a whole that sometimes Snorri is uh, called the Homer of the North. Yes. And just give us some examples of where those stories have ended up in, in popular culture, because they're everywhere. They're everywhere. 
Uh, they're in, in artwork, of course, uh, and in Scandinavia and all around the world. But uh, of course, J.R. Tolkien was highly influenced by Snorri. So Lord of the Rings is uh, highly uh, under the influence of uh, Snorri's work. Mm -hmm. uh, even Game of Thrones yes. has uh, a lot of it. If you remember the Stark boy and uh, you, when he went blind and the, the wolf and the raven and the old man onto the tree roots, which he visits, uh, that is also highly uh, influenced by that. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, uh, even, uh, well, even to mention Henry David Thoreau of uh, the US, who was uh, a poet and uh, an American uh, politician and philosopher, uh, he was highly under the influence of Snorri. And uh, Borges from South America, even the Brothers Grimm, um, movie makers, of course, today, Hollywood, yes. um, and uh, even the Batman movies, with very few real eyes. What's the connection there? Well, the connection is that uh, it's, it's in the in, in inspiration uh, and to the story, and the Joker is, of course, Loki. Of course. That makes perfect sense. Yes. And you've got Wagner, of course. You oh, can't yes. really go to any Wagner opera without there being some, some influence there. Mm -hmm. And even as we stand here in the middle of January with Christmas just gone past, you think of Santa Claus with his eight reindeer. It's not a million miles from Odin and Sleipnir, the eight-legged horse, oh, yes. is it? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. No, you mentioned it. I've never thought about that, really. <laughs> but yes, you're probably right. And here we are in 2024 now with this astonishing legacy that, that continues. Did he, do you, I mean, do you think he wrote them down because he wanted them to be something that people would refer to for hundreds and hundreds of years? No, I, I don't think that he would ever have imagined that. He's writing the Atta as a book, a key book in mythology to teach his pupils here in Reykjavik about mythology. So it, that is simply the reason. So it's a, a book to teach his pupils and written as, as a key book in mythology. Now, that's the myths we're talking about. Yeah. The sagas, he does feature, of course, in, in Eil Saga. Yeah, the saga, Eil Saga, which is very li likely that he wrote, uh, some believe that he wrote that to honor his first wife. Uh, he didn't, uh, uh, he wasn't very nice to her, and he wanted to honor her family mm -hmm. and uh, by writing the, the saga of Eil. Looking back at his legacy, we've talked about the number of Icelanders, yourself included, that can trace their family tree back to him and have a you know genetic connection with the man. He still seems to influence the country to a huge extent, doesn't he? Does he represent the personality of Iceland, do you think? <laughs> I, I don't know. I have never, actually never thought about that. Uh, sometimes I think that uh, many foreigners know more about him than Icelanders. I think that he never really got um, the, the credit that he should mm. have here in Iceland. Uh, some, at some point, the people of Iceland considered that he was a traitor to Iceland, that he was selling us out to uh, Norway, and uh, that he was uh, a snob, snobbing for the kings of Norway. We, mm. we don't like that. And uh, um, yeah, I think, I think that he never really got the credit. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, I think that uh, through uh, the interest of foreigners, Icelanders are getting more interested in, in him now mm. than they were before. Now, we should, of course, say that we're standing here in the exhibition that's open to everyone. It's not open at the moment during the winter. We'll, we'll talk about that. But there's a research centre here that mm -hmm. works constantly. 
regardless of the exhibition that's here open to the public, what takes place in the research centre? Yeah, well, Snorostova is a medieval research centre and uh, we have been uh, in charge of uh, many projects, uh, most of them involving excavations and mm. also investigations of manuscripts. Uh, we work very closely with uh, many universities all around the world, of course, mostly in the Scandinavian countries. But uh, we had a very big project, which was about the Norse mythology, mm -hmm. an international project, which went on for 10 years and has resulted in several books. Uh, we have published, uh, I don't, I always forget how many we, we are, how many books now, but I think somewhere between 24 or 26 books okay. with results from a uh, project that we have led. Uh, but this project about the Norse mythology was uh, um, a big, big project. But now we are in charge of um, a project that was uh, established in 2019 by our Prime Minister, Katrin Jakobsdóttir. It's called the RIM project, and it's investigations of uh, medieval research centers. How was uh, the work organized? Where were these centers? How many were they? How big were they? Uh, so it involves, obviously, excavations. Um, I don't know if you have heard about Thingerer uh, uh, um, excavations. There was a big monastery there, and it was uh, on the news, I think, two or three years ago, mm -hmm. when they were investigating the grave of a bishop, which they discovered. Uh, the, I think the bishop, he died only at the age of 26, but he uh, was wearing a very, very grand ring on his finger. And uh, this is a, a project that we are leading. And we were working very closely with Arna uh, Stopnen in Reykjavik. Mm. Uh, and this also, of course, involves investigations of manuscripts. So what is done is that my director here, he is uh, with Guido Nortol of the Magnusson Institute, in charge of uh, going through all the applications from, uh, from scientists and scholars mm -hmm. and uh, choose which projects uh, they want to you know, give, give the money to this and this year. Okay. And... Um, well, now uh, 2024 is the last year, and we are, of course, hoping that it will be expanded. Well, thank you so much for showing me around the exhibition. There's plainly such a, a continuing interest, particularly, I think, in the Norse myths as they were written down. And the exhibition here, then, as we said, not open during the winter, but when can people come and spend some time here? Uh, well, during the summer, from May until uh, 1st of September, we'll open all days uh, from 10 to 17 hours in, in the evening, or 5 in the evening. Uh, and during the winter, we're also open, but just on weekdays. Mm -hmm. But uh, uh, we decided this winter to have uh, the exhibition closed in January and until the 18th of February. But then we simply just open again and uh, everything will be up to normal. So it's uh, six or seven weeks that we close. And do you find, I think you mentioned it there, that some people when they come here, they know more about Snorri than many Icelanders. So there are well-read, well-researched visitors that come here to find out even more. Yes, absolutely. Because sometimes I think that Icelanders, they think that they know, but they don't. And uh, I'm, you know, they get surprised mm -hmm. all the time. And sometimes I have groups here, maybe, uh, you know, med uh, older Icelanders and... Uh, and they are always surprised. Oh, I didn't know that. And okay, I have forgot that. And they, they think that they learned all at school, but they haven't. Well, so, there's a lot to learn here. Yes, so they actually <laughs> know less than they think. But we get many people here that know a lot mm, and, mm. And, uh, and that are very much interested. Um, people from Norway, of course, 
are very much interested because mm. of Heimskringla, the biography of the Norse kings that was put together here. Uh, so thanks to him, uh, the people mm. of Norway, they have this soul book about their kings and their lords and their history, uh, and w which they would not have otherwise and without Snorri. This is, of course, what makes him so important. Mm. And these stories in Heimskringla, they are so amazing. I can only advise people to read it. It can be uh, uh, landed at, at most libraries, uh, and it can be ordered in English on Amazon and uh, also in a modern translation. It's not heavy reading, and it's so it's simply adventurous. Do you have some copies here? Yes, yes. a lot of copies. There, there is a lot of literature here if you want to, having made the journey here, uh, follow up on that interest a bit further. Lots of books available to buy, including, and you mentioned this on the way, and we'll just pick one to talk about. This is the illustrated story or stories of the Viking gods as, as, as first written down, I suppose, by Snorri, but, but beautiful illustrations that really bring the stories to life. Yes, this, uh, this special copy is so important and so dear to me because it has all this uh, fine art, artwork, which is by uh, different artists, uh, mostly Scandinavian artists. And uh, in the back, there are information about these artists. And uh, uh, the publisher, he used 12 years on putting this together and getting uh, you know, a license and, uh, mm. from the owners of the artwork. Um, most of this artwork is uh, in galleries and museums in Scandinavia, but some of them are privately owned. I, I think actually quite a, a great deal uh, by the former uh, Queen of Denmark now, pro probably uh, Frederick, <laughs> a king of Denmark. King of Denmark. Yeah, yeah. but uh, but also Carl Gustav of Sweden. So uh, yeah, I got to, I got to know the publisher personally when he was putting this book together. And this is maybe also one of the reasons why it's very dear to me. Many other books available as well in a variety of different languages if you want to follow up the interest which might be piqued when you uh, arrive here for the first time. Sigrid, thank you very much indeed. Well, you're welcome. Thank you for the visit. We'll put a link up to the website of Snodestoffer on the page accompanying the show from Ruve English Radio. I'm Darren Adam and you can get in touch with us anytime. English at ruv.is. There is more from Ruv English with all the news from Iceland in English at ruv.is slash English. Ruv English Radio is a daily English language radio from Iceland's national broadcaster, Ruv. <laughs>